Hello, welcome to Coyote Radio, the internet radio and podcast show where we talk about health and fitness and eating off the land. This is Adam, your host. This is episode number one, version 2.0. First version had a little bit of audio quietness to it, so I boosted the audio and we should be able to hear it a lot better. Today, our guest is Dina Falcone, who is an author and educator. Her book, Foraging and Feasting, a Field Guide and Wild Food Cookbook, was released in 2013, and we're going to talk to her about her book and some of her educational endeavors. So without further ado, we're going to have a short intermission and then go talk to Dina. So, Dina, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. I appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule. Glad to be with you, Adam. Great, thank you. And so, um, how about uh, how about if we start off with uh, you telling the the folks out there um, just who's uh, who's Dina Falcone? What's your what's your background? Uh, well, my background um, is as, I'm an herbalist. Uh, I've been uh, professionally how would I say it? I've been earning a living as an herbalist for the last 25 years. And being an herbalist means many things. Um, one is working with health, uh, fo- focusing with clients and their health issues. Um, other aspects include learning all the wild flora and uh, in my region, that is, and, and trying to understand how it's used for food and medicine. And then also making those medicines and preparing those foods. So there's the crude apothecary component to the herbalism that I practice. Um, what else about who I am? Um, I also am a food activist and have organized events around those issues, dealing with um, ecologically produced foods and environmental issues related to food and trying to um, celebrate regional, local, sustainable food systems. I am a slow food steering committee member here in the Hudson Valley. I've also been involved with Weston A. Price Foundation since it began as a chapter leader, and that might be about 15 years ago. Um, what else do I do? Uh, I do a lot of cooking. I've been cooking since I was a girl, and um, the foraging part it feeds into, into the cooking in a big way, and also working with clients and their health issues. A lot of it is food-related, so we, we go into the food component of healing. Food is our medicine. Um, what else to say? And I do a lot of um, educating. That's another thing as an herbalist is help, you know, to teach people how to meet the plants where they that, that are here and abundant and local, um, how to meet the plants and also how to use them and teach people um, how to cook with them and how to prepare their own medicines and their own herbal body care. That's, that's the first book that I wrote was about how to make your own personal care products called Earthly Bodies and Heavenly Hair. Um, and I'm also a gardener, so but I do the kind of gardening that is uh, inclusive of wild things, and it's the homestead we have here are extensive kind of, uh, some people might call them, quote, food forests or um, landscapes that really combine permaculture concepts. Uh, yeah, so I think that's a bit, maybe, I don't know, that tells a bit about who I am. Um, you know, for those who don't know what a clinical herbalist is, um, what do they do? What do you What do you do in that uh, sure. in that aspect? So that that term, clinical herbalism, is used just to give a more formal context to the practice of, of being an herbalist. So I will set up like uh, other healthcare providers. I'll set up um, at, you know uh, appointments and see clients over time. Like some clients, I might see for 20 years working with them on their health. I'm really a support person. I'm a wellness, I think of it as a holistic wellness um, consultant. Um, And I work with food and herbs to help people um, move into a a greater state of health. And I work in a formal kind of setting. So 
I'm really having um, a one-on-one discourse with my client and I'm doing intakes and I'm tracking their progress and that kind of thing. So a clinical herbalist just means where it's a more, it's a formal relationship to working with somebody on their health using herbs and food. And I, I was trained as a clinical herbalist um, in the early 90s uh, with a man named William LaSalcier who's no longer with us and so he really uh, helped tool- I-, I would say that I really gathered up the tools he was a big foundation for how I practice and, but the tools I've been gathering now have, are accumulating always over the years But so there's a formal component you know the training and then the actual intake that, that relates to being a clinical herbalist Okay, great. Thanks for uh, shedding some light on that. Um, I wasn't really sure, sure myself um, when I when I first read that. I, I could take a stab at it, but um, I'm, I'm glad you kind of kind of uh, gave me some some background information there. Um, yeah, I mean it's basically taking a case. So if you have a client and they become your caseload, so to speak, you work with them, and it's that that approach that you might have as as a healthcare provider. You're not a doctor, and you're not um, anything other than, you know, I'm nothing other than a support person, but it's a, it's a very distinct moment you have with your client that you meet with, and, you you know, I'm rating their case, and I'm tracking their progress. It's, that's clinical in that, in that way versus teaching a class as an educator, which I do and help people with, you know, giving them suggestions, but this is a more concentrated, focused approach with the background of having training to understand what that client needs and then helping them um, to gain better health through the use of food and herbs. So yeah, well, I, I hope that makes sense. Oh, yeah. it does. It does completely. And it's really encouraging to, to uh, hear that there are people out there that uh, provide that, uh, that consultation service for others, bringing uh, a, a holistic, natural approach to healthcare and, uh, and overall health to, to people. It's, it's something that's just, in my opinion, terribly lacking in, uh, in at least the U.S. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So I, it's really exciting to, to hear that you're, that you're able to, to do that. Um, and that also helps kind of explain some of the, some of the things that I found in your book. Um, some of the, some of the nuances because, mm-hmm. <coughs> excuse me, I'm a, uh, uh, I'll say long time and I'll say probably I've been gathering, uh, hunting and gathering for my own food for over 14 years now. And you notice pretty quickly when you, when you pick up someone's work, whether you're looking at their website or you pick up a book that they've published or a magazine article you can kind of get an idea what their background is, uh, the the degree of uh, really deep-seated knowledge that they have from that material. Tip often, I mean, not always, but but generally yeah. speaking. So when I got my hands on your book, which is in my hands right now, um, I was just I was blown away because it was clear that this isn't a book that was written by somebody who took a bunch of uh, information from other sources. In other words, you didn't like go to the library or buy a bunch of books on edible plants and then just e- extrapolate from those sources. You were clearly writing from a, um, a different, more, more deep-seated knowledge base. Mm, thank yeah. you. I'm glad you see that. Yeah. For the functional user, uh, it, it matters. Um, and, and so for me, it, it it was really important uh, to see, and I look for that in books uh, when I when I buy them. You know, as far as when I when I personally judge a uh, uh, an edible plants book or a medicinal plants book, um, I'm looking for for some of those some of those background things. They're not just regurgitated data from someplace else. You know, it's it's personal exactly. it's personal um, interactions and relationships with the plants. And so I've got to ask about the book. How big is this thing from top to bottom and side to side? It's eight and a half by 11. It is. It's, 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 it's eight and a half by 11. This is the first book, I, I think, that that I have bought that is this big in regards to, uh, to um, 
edible plants. Mm. Uh, and so I, I just, I, I have to ask, why did you go with, with this big format? I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a departure from, uh, you know, from the little more pocket guide or field guide type book. Which sure. are which are small, and you get them out in the field, and you're trying to look at these little bitty pictures with the plant. Exactly. I can't, you know, and you're you're trying to figure out. Well, uh, I can't. Well, you got it. That's why. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to create these pages so that they really would give the viewer uh, a truly useful tool, so you could reference your plant out in the field with this page. A lot of the images are, are actual size or um, a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller. So not always, but often you get to see the leaf in its actual size times one. So the renderings are very scientific and the, the plant maps, I call them, they're, they're the pages that detail the plant. And you enter those plant maps and I, I, if we shrunk them down, we would lose too much. You know, it had to be this size or bigger, but it couldn't be bigger because it'd be too cumbersome. But it felt like if we shrunk it, we would go to that same issue that so many other field guides have, where you can't make sense of anything. You know, we, we wanted you to be able to see the hairs on things or to see the um, scalloping of the, of the leaf margin or even a, the texture of a leaf. And, and so the size of the page was necessary for those details to be able to come out, but also to arrange um, the plant through its life cycle. So that was another theme that I work with in the book to create these pages that track a plant through their growing cycle. And you need space to do that. And if you shrink it, you lose it. So that's why you have such a humongous book in your hand. It's not that humongous, it's just eight and a half by 11. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a regular notebook size. But relative to field guides, um, you're right. It's more like the um, uh, books by Simmons, I think is his last name, where you're keying out trees and shrubs, and he, it's the same size that he has because you're really using actual leaf size and um, it, in his book as well. So you get to take a leaf from a tree and put it down on the page and see how it relates. So that, you know, it, not not all through can you do that with our, with our book here, but... Um, Anyway, so that's why, because I wanted to tell a plant story, and these pages are called, these plant map pages really tell a story, and we needed that kind of space in order to, to do that. You know, consciously, I hadn't actually thought about that life cycle um, display, and, and I'm so, I'm, I'm, I've got sheep sorrel up in front of me here, and I, yeah, I see that completely. I hadn't thought about it uh, on a conscious level, but sure enough, there it is. There it is in its uh, younger stages, and you show the... Uh, um, all the way down to the to the root system plus um, flower bud progression. On, exactly. Yeah, on through to uh, looks like when they're um, just transitioning from uh, the flower stage into the the seed stage as well. And that's right. some of the um, some of the plants you dedicated um, two pages to and and so for people who don't have their book sitting in front of them and they 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 don't realize just how big these images are um that i mean like like now here's nettle for example here's two large pages uh with with nettle and the diagram is i could get a nettle plant and and hold it right here and it would be it looks like one to one almost some of the plants are more complicated and they couldn't they couldn't be put on one page if we it would be too crowded so part of creating this book and the design for it was that it would be beautiful um in in a very functional way so it would be very highly functional but also beautiful and we were striking that balance with this book um so nettle or lamb's quarter some of the plants that have uh, all these different stages and they have bigger leaves we took more space with and we had to break them out into two pages uh, it didn't work to put them on one that's why the nettle really changes once it goes to flower and seed and it's just really fun to show people what does the female flower look like and then the male flower and then the seed stage um, you know it, it was actually really hard for me to stop because there's so much to share, you know? <laughs> and my illustrator, who thankfully worked with me, 
um, on this, you know, was patient, impatient too, but I could have just gone on and on and she sort of, you know, I'd wear her out, <laughs> but she was great. She was totally willing. Um, but so, you know, it's just exciting. It was, and being an educator of, of, of this material for so many years, to be able to put it into, um, like, you, you know, a functional tool format, this book, how could this book be most effective? You know, and so that was always the challenge is are we speaking through these pages? Am I saying what I need to say visually to give the reader or, or the viewer, you know, the tools they need to do this foraging properly? You know, and then what do you do with it? So part of those pages also are in, they're heavily instructional, you know, and they've got the details on the bottom, like the gray bars. So you're not left hanging with just keying them out. Then you're led into how they're used, you know, where you'd find them. So those pages, I wanted, I wanted them to be complete and whole, as whole as I could, um, you know, in two dimensions, and give that reader, you know, the feeling of of that world of that plant and all the things that they would need to know. Well, it uh, it it absolutely works. Um, I'm as a as a user of. Uh, of wild edible plant books uh, and guides, I, generally speaking, do not like line drawings or illustrations as identification guides. And this book is what the the template, and, and again, just my opinion, should be for uh, when when people are, are using uh, in their in their books that they're creating. And they're any any kind of kind of field guide. This is the kind of, of illustrative documentation that is necessary for good, uh, accurate, adequate uh, documentation. Because it and and not to say that that the photograph based ID books aren't also somewhat. Uh, problematic because all too often the images are too small you only see one variation of them and so it in in the perfect world according to me the the images should be really big and there should be more than one growth stage variation so that you can find them throughout the seasons and your images and your book you have that in here and and it's this is this is a book with illustrations and drawings that absolutely are functional in the field. Thank you. Yep. That's what we work so hard to get. Um, you know, as my illustrator who is also very talented, um, you know, I really directed her to, 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 it's almost like, you know, she was my tool to create these images. Her talent allowed these images to really speak clearly like you know, like you're describing. So, and because I do educate on this topic, I I knew the clue. I know the clues that need to be shared, and then I needed for her to be able to draw those, and she did them beautifully. You know, so it was an ongoing dialogue between she and I, where I would be directing what she was drawing. She would draw it. We would critique it. Come back and forth with some plans for two years, some three. You know, and it, 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 it yeah. So you got it exactly that this should be highly highly useful and functional and it's an answer to most of the field guides that we have that don't take us that far and they're frustrating even though I really appreciate them and use them have used them this was an answer to what was missing like filling the niche of what had been you know a band not had had not been taken care of and so I'm hoping and and I hear from you at least that you're getting that and I'm thrilled so that's wonderful yeah, that's uh, that's exactly it. You you really hit the nail on the head, and the the background, the research, the um, uh, effort that went into it comes through very well in the um, in the the presentation. But that's just the first what third of the book, even. It's the first fifty, yeah, fifty six pages or something. So there's yeah. There's a whole bunch more book here. Yeah. <laughs> There's right. you've got uh, plant charts in here with these really nice um, color tabs to help you uh, up in the the upper corner of the uh, of the pages that help you quick 
reference sure. those charts. Where did you get the idea or what was the driving force behind putting in uh, these these different charts? You've got seasonal harvest charts, plant biography charts, um, right. habitat and growing condition charts. That's a, a healthy amount yeah. of information and it's and it's done in a in a graphic representation of charts. Yes. Um, uh, so I had the image for these these charts as very useful functional tools for people um, who want to scan. Like you're, you know, looking at the season. Where am I? Because this is something that I do, you know. So I'm. What time of year is it right now? And I can look at this chart, and then I can go and see. Hmm. What can I harvest at this point? You know, and that that's part of the the fun. It's like being able to click into something so the charts help you click pretty quickly so you know you can you can um you can say okay i am in mid-spring right now and i can look through the mid-spring column and i can see oh well i have nettle you know and if i if i find muskmallow i can eat that right now and blah 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 blah, blah, blah. it goes on and on so for me i'm a chart lover like i've studied charts through the years nutrition charts uh plant charts growing charts um, and so the culinary uses is also really fun. It's like, so you found, you've keyed out your plant, you know what it is, and now what do you do with it? You know, so you can go to the culinary uses and you can say, ah, I eat it raw and cooked. Let's take, you know, the dame's rocket leaf and I can cook it or I can eat it raw. How would I cook it? Oh, I can make this and that, you know, I can make it into a soup or I can put it in a sandwich or there's some potter recipes in it. And in this book, it leads you right to those recipes. So you're taken from um, the plant you've just keyed out, and then you can figure out your options for how to prepare it, and then you can go to the kitchen art section, which is the 100 master recipes, and we can get more into those in a moment. But So the charts for me, um, you know, appeal to that, that part of my brain where I just, like, I want something quickly and fast. <laughs> you know, I just, I don't want to be sifting through a book to find all the parts, I just want it right there. And so it's collating, basically the charts collate the entire book's information. Within those 10 pages, much of the data is put together for you. But it's not, I mean, I, I did work to make them beautiful so that they have color in them and they function well and your eye can enjoy them. But charts don't do it for me either. That's why I really love the visual pages, you know. So. There's the aesthetic beauty in the plant maps, and then you get to those charts, which are really charged data, you know, data, uh, it's a data center, basically, these 10 pages of charts, and then you get to the cookbook section, which is really a directional, um, uh, almost a, a, something that brings you into your senses a little bit, you know, through taste and smell, trying to describe things for the reader and how they, you know, how they prepare these foods and the actual tools to do it so you know exactly how to make the food not just oh you know a generic kind of concept the um the recipes are really detailed so you have um somebody holding your hand really in the kitchen with you you know and taking you through it there there is somebody was saying uh you need to trust a little bit because there's a lot of I'm encouraging the reader to use their own creativity while I'm also holding their hand through the steps. So there's both those components in the recipe section. Oh yeah, um, the the uh, the recipe section is a whole nother just outstanding uh, breakdown of. It's not just they're they're not simply recipes. You have. Uh, the, the, as you were saying, the, the master recipes, which are a, a base um, to work off of. And for someone like uh, someone like me, for example, who has never made, um, let's uh, pick the, um, uh, let's see, let me, I'm going to find one here real quick. Um, <laughs> ah, okay, here we go. Uh, maple butter and all its variations. I've never done uh, anything like uh, the the butter um, uh, uh, preparations and, and so I can <coughs> very quickly uh, glance at it find the maple butter and all its variations master recipe and it gives at at the 
the beginning um, a breakdown of how to make it, and then it has after that the uh, the variation for it, and that's also a first uh, in a in a, in a wild edible plant book that. Mm. In, in this format, in exactly this format, I don't, I can't recall ever seeing that um, before bro broken down yeah, like this. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't exist in other wild food cookbooks. Usually, they take one, they they feature one plant and a recipe, you know, for that plant. And I felt frustrated by that and wanted, or frustrated is the right word. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't really what a student or somebody who wants to cook, you know, it, it stops the, the, the reader when they don't have that particular ingredient. So the idea was to create master recipes, kind of like Julia Child did in The Art of French Cooking, where she would teach a master recipe in that book, and then she would follow it with variations. So she did it in The Joy of Cooking, another classic, does it to some extent. So I played with that idea that idea where you, you set a master recipe and you have the concrete elements of how it has to be, you know, what parts need to stay steady and what, what steps you need to follow. But within that, there are certain variables that you can switch out. And, and then I give what those variables are. And that makes it just, it, it educates the reader. So there's a literacy around cooking, a literacy around food, because you begin to learn techniques and then understand what ingredients you can mix and match and what you can't do that with. You know, there's a certain structure that needs to stay intact, and then there are the things that you can, um, yeah, pull in or out. And so it was exciting and very challenging to create a cookbook that wasn't about one recipe, but that the one recipe had 30 recipes in it, and I'd have to test and retest. <laughs> all of these, you know, variables to make sure that they all work and that, so it's a hundred master recipes, but it's potentially two to three thousand recipes come out of that. Sure, sure. I, I can, yeah. I can easily see how that uh, would work. And in fact, the, the way that the, the way that these recipes are set up, uh, I I don't think a person has to have wild edible plants even. You could just use a lot of these recipes. Um, just go to the grocery store and buy um, a, a variant of a lot of these foods. You don't even necessarily have to have it. It's that good of a cookbook. Yeah, actually, you're absolutely right. That was, that was an interesting thing was that I didn't want, let's say, somebody who's excited about um, cooking and they have this cookbook and it's snowing like where we live we don't get to forage three four five months out of the year um, you could still use this book and so the idea was that I would start with celebrating the wild plants the ones that we feature the 50 that are featured in the front and put those to recipes and um, but follow through with always the cultivated variations, which is also how we help people learn to cook with wild because if you explain which of the cultivated greens could be used in that recipe, then they get a sense of what the wild ones are like. They're not the same, and I would never equate them, but just in terms of recipe um, fluency, you know, that you get, like somebody just asked me, well, how do I cook nettle? And I said, well, think about it as a, as a, a spinach, uh, kale, uh, green, but it's not, it doesn't, it has its own meaty, delicious, deep flavor. But if you were going to use it in the recipe, you could use it where you use those two. But it's a little denser than spinach and not quite as tough as, as a hearty kale. You know, so in this cookbook, it has all of that information so that somebody could take it um, right through to the garden or to the farmer's market and not even, not even cook wild with it, just like you said. And that was exciting for me, was to, to kind of liberate the reader, so you're not stuck in the wild or the cultivated, you have choices, you know, and include whatever it is that is available to you, because that's how I live. You know, that's what I'm going to, I'm always, you know, using what's at hand, and that's going to vary, and I, and I want these templates, these classic master recipes that I can, you know, lean on to include whatever's moving through the seasons, and that was that was my intention in, in these master recipes. Yep. Well, it's uh, it's really 
um, helpful uh, for someone like me uh, to be able to hand this off to someone else. Because uh, I, I have people, in fact, actually what the, the one of the driving forces behind me doing this podcast were is um, my kid's sister and I decided to do a paleo diet challenge for three weeks. We didn't know anything about the paleo challenge. We go to different gyms. <laughs> she goes to a CrossFit gym. I go to... Uh, um, a small uh, family-owned gym, and the instructors at both our gyms are big into the paleo diet, primal diet um, mm. thing. And so she and I just decided, hey, let's try this thing out. They keep talking about it at our gym. So I went to do the research, like so many people do, and came up with conflicts, and I don't understand what can I actually eat, what, what's the deal behind all of this. So I asked my instructor, I said, hey, um, and in particular, one of my yoga instructors, um, you know, I, I'm looking for some background here. And, and by the way, uh, you know, I eat wild edible plants and, and hunt for my own game. And I don't see much of a, an emphasis on that in, in these, these, um, uh, these, these, uh, nutrition, uh, plans that are that are broke out. Yeah. In paleo and, 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 um, Mark Sisson's primal, they don't have much of a focus, if at all on wild edible plants. And yet we're supposedly trying to copy, um, uh, our, our, our base, um, paleolithical, um, dietary intake. And it's at the grocery store, which just, it was totally incongruous to me. So I asked her about that and she's like, yeah, you know what? There, there really isn't much. And she said, I would like to get into wild edible plants, but I don't know where to start. I don't know. I'm afraid to eat the wrong things and I don't really know what to do with them. I can take me, Adam, I can take this book and hand it to her and say, start here. Here's the, here's a here's an excellent base, and I got a couple other books that I can I can refer to you. But it because the this book is so inclusive of everything from identification to harvesting techniques to uh, preparations, where to find, when to find it, um, it 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 it's a great tool for someone like me to be able to help someone else and get them into the into the, the whole thing. And she actually, she, she made this, this comment to me. She said, well, so yeah, there's all this information lacking. Maybe you're the person who should get that information out to people. So that's how I decided to uh, start doing a podcast. Just as an aside, it directly linked to wild edible plants. Nice. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So one thing I would add, I would add yeah. though, just as much as your enthusiasm is to hand this book over. And I agree. It's a wonderful tool. It's you know, I think right now that, you know, it just will serve, um, like you're saying, the novice so well, so well. And somebody who's really experienced, too, will get a lot from it. But I always feel like it's good when somebody's just starting, you know, to have this book in hand and also go on some plant walks, you know, with you, for example, if you're, if you're foraging or with somebody who has experience because, um, you know, it just, to develop uh, the ability to keep plants out takes a little bit of practice. It's just not hard, but it just takes practice, and it takes a little time, and um, it can feel overwhelming and scary, and it, it's so great if there's an actual live human being that you can follow around as much as you can, and um, and this book, though, takes that information and goes on with it, and, you know, it's, it's wonderful, but I would just add, you know, that people search um, for some wild food experts or friends or foragers in their in their neighborhoods and that they can tag along with, that just goes a long way, you know, as well. But yeah, so I just want to add that. And that's a that is something that I wanted to touch on uh, in our conversation was what are your recommendations? I have my own recommendations. Actually, what the heck? I'll run them by you if you don't mind. Sure. This is this is the way that I. Um, broach the topic of of getting people interested in actually gathering their own um, wild edible plants and it's kind of like it's it's like a six part um, progress because 
I want to make sure that if I'm suggesting somebody do something, that they're able to do it in a in an inclusive and safe way. So um, I I give them reference material. Um, I, I, there's a couple of books that I recommend. Um, now this one's in that group of books, uh, and and one of them is always find a uh, wherever you happen to be living, find a a wildflower identification guide that has um, really nice illustrations that are very appealing to your eye and mm. have that as part of your, your library. So it's just, just a wildflower book specific to the area that you're li that you live in. And then there's a, a great idea. Yeah. there's a couple of other ID books and, and field guide books that I recommend them um, have. But then I also include go out with someone that you know you have faith in they know what they're doing they've been doing this and mm -hmm. it's part of their um it's part of their lifestyle it isn't just some oh yeah i you know i read about this on the internet and now ta-da i'm a wild edible foods expert mm -hmm. now somebody with years of experience that you can really put your faith in that they know what they're doing it's it's an inclusive part of their uh of their life so the books studying with someone else and then always as the last component using um, the person's own critical thinking and research to verify yes I know intrinsically without a shadow of a doubt period that this plant in this growth stage is edible in the way that I'm planning on on harvesting it so the last factor is the person's own gut feeling or, or instinct based mm. on knowledge that they've built up over time. That's my take on it. I'm curious what yeah. uh, what yours is. Yeah, those all sound just right on. Same, yep. I mean, I, I also suggest a little exercise always, which is to um, be observant of the flora in the neighborhood. Like, this is how I've learned plants over the years. So, I'm, I'm out there and observing and noticing and not necessarily knowing, but by observing, like uh, wild lettuce I was introduced to 25 years ago, it, it, it arrived just in the front yard and I watched it from little seedling stage to growing seven feet tall and in flower. But if I didn't track that plant through its life cycle, um, but, and I didn't know what it was, and I didn't have to know. It was about observation. So it was about that that pulling away from the impatient culture that we're in to have to know, how do we use this? What is it called? But rather become attuned and observant to the, to the wild plants that arrive in your area, and slowly they all become known. And again, that the way that you would know them is with your wildflower guide you just described for your local area. That's fabulous going on walks where someone could confirm what it is, but tuning that, our own sense of vision, tuning our vision um, into the wild plants is pretty important, and, and then we become, much, we become much more awake and literate, and, you know, we can easily differentiate what once looked like a carpet of green, now we can see there's 30 different species in there, um, so part of the exercise I always give students is to observe unknown plants and not to eat them and not necessarily even to touch them but just to watch them over time over a year even if you can or two um yeah so just to add to that list is being plant, a plant observer a plant detective <laughs> i like without that without attachment I, yeah. I i like that term plant detective yeah it's what I love. That's how I keep plants out. I'll find who just showed up on my land. Oh, who are you? And I'm going to watch you now. You know, and then I'll pull out my ID books and figure out, oh, here you are. Now I know who you are. <laughs> but that will take time for a novice. And so they may not know who it is, but they'll still get to know that plant. And that's how we, be, we, we become fluent in flora, you know, just by observing. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, speaking of uh, flora, um, you know we were we were talking earlier about the um, about you know being able to take the recipes and uh, apply them to just regular grocery store 
um, plants and ingredients uh, if you don't have the, the wild ingredients uh, on hand. And I wonder if you could touch on the nutritional uh, differences between, like for example, nettles um, as a as a theoretical substitute for uh, for spinach or kale, that happens to be a, a parallel that I use when I'm trying to describe why I eat something that stings. Um, <laughs> so, as uh, yeah, what's the nutritional yeah. differences? Your question is good, and um, in writing this book, when I was when I was researching and writing and detailing, I wanted a nutritional chart for all the plants that I have in it. And so I was try- I was searching, searching databases and couldn't find any real uh, current nutritional information on wild plants, and that's frustrating. So I have I have information based on uh, you know old herbals and a couple of books you know here and there have you know you had to kind of paste I had to paste all this information together. Um, so I just have to say that it's a little bit hard when somebody says give the, the, the nutritional analysis of a particular wild plant because it's not done anymore. And, you know, maybe there's no profit in extolling the nutrient density of wild plants because no one's going to make any money on it and no one's going to invest in it. It's really free nutrients and food for the people. So there's not a whole lot of incentive there, financial incentive Having said that, I know that nettle is extremely mineral rich, so we have a very um, uh, high magnesium, high iron, high calcium content. Um, Depending on how the kale is grown, the kale can also have a very high calcium magnesium content. Um, You know, so I don't want to knock one out over the other. (laughs) It's not like I want people, I want people to eat uh, cultivated, locally produced vegetables that have been grown on nutrient-dense soils, and that produce is going to be amazing, too. Um, but the nettle is deeply nourishing. Over, You know, it's been used as a blood builder, as a blood tonic over the years to help bring mineral content up in, in the body. Um, so, again, I'm a little, I, you know, I don't have those levels because they're not current. There's not current scientific data on the raw plants. But generally speaking, the wild plants kick the cultivated ones kind of out of the ballpark. You know, if you were to look at the older charts, which I think there's one from Mother Earth News from the 1970s, and it shows nettle, you know, just kind of kicking butt. <laughs> like basically, you know, you really want a mineral or a mineralizing vegetable, well, eat your nettle. Um, not to put spinach or kale down, though. Uh, the other thing about nettle is that it's also incredibly warming. So part of the wild plants and what they offer us, they have a lot more personality. Generally, they have a lot more what are called secondary metabolites. They're things like essential oil content or phytonutrients, um, bitter principles, and just things like that. So there's curative or therapeutic components to the wild plants that the breed, you know, our, our breed um, of cultivated plants often don't have that much of. They're a milder, tamed version of the wild plant. So the wild plants offer us a certain kind of vigor. But don't forget, that vigor also is persuasive and may not be appropriate for certain body types. Like, I'll use nettle as an example. Again, nettle is very fiery, and it's a beautiful, warming plant. But if you run high in heat in your body, like you're a pitta constitution in Ayurveda, where you just have a lot of heat in your body, Nettle may not be appropriate for you. <laughs> you know, it may exacerbate the heat. So there are those things to consider. The personality, the the, the qualities that the plants have are, are pronounced and need to be considered. Um, and they add therapeutic components, um, like I said. But anyway, so nettle is just a powerful food. Um, and I would say that it probably is a much higher mineralizer than most of our cultivated greens. Uh, what else to say? It's also probably more protein-rich than most of our cultivated greens. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, <clears throat> excuse me, the, um, uh, the, the way that I view, <clears throat> and I'm not a professional, um, and I don't play one on TV, 
the way that I view the um, the the uh, one of the reasons for uh, being like a regular person, uh, I I've got a nine to five job. I I have a half hour commute into work. I've got you know car payments and and uh, you know mortgage and and all this stuff that that the majority of folks out there have to deal with in a daily basis that's um you know part and parcel to my life too so one of the reasons one of the several reasons why i include um wild edible plants in my diet in my in my activities and and things that i do is because the um the health benefits and the nutrition benefits are are, are there and it's not only in the um, uh, you know the the micro and macronutrient content differences between store-bought um, foods but also the physical act also and uh, of going and gathering them the the three-dimensional um, brain processes that are required and, and the learning process that's required that keeps and and the, the brain active that process of, of tracking plants, learning them over the seasons, it, it creates that whole three and four dimensional uh, conceptual uh, development neurologically in the in the brain. Plus, there's the exercise of hiking to where they are, bending mm. down to gather them, and so on. And I was wondering if if you um, if you touch on that at all in any of your uh, uh, your studies or your um, your teaching. Yeah, I agree with you completely. It's it's about you know, so it's a you take the kids out and instead of sitting in front of the TV, you go into the backyard. You're in the sun. You're smelling the flowers and you're picking some salad. <laughs> you know, you really you're connecting to nature directly, and that has a huge impact on who we are. I think it it, it creates a lot of health. I think with clients, I usually um, if they're well, depending on what their health concerns are, but. Oftentimes they don't get outside at all, and part of some of the suggestions for a healthier endocrine system, a healthier hormonal system, is to be out in nature, to at least be out with the elements for some, maybe a half an hour a day at least. Some people don't get that. That's medicine. So not only are you getting, like you said, all the you know the nutrients in the food, but there are these other components. If hiking to a spot to gather food, well, that, that exercise is key, too, absolutely. You're a good 20-minute walk, but sometimes we don't have the time to walk, so just being outside and just gathering net in the nettle patch, you know, wear gloves, but <laughs> gathering your food, it, it can brighten the day, just um, an uplifting, you know, mood experience just to be outside. Also, there's something really exciting about connecting directly to nature and feeding ourselves from nature. You know, that direct connection is very, it's, it's very uh, deeply satisfying. You know, in an unconscious way, it makes us feel supported and connected in a way that I think other things that we do in our, you know, going to the store in the car, using money, buying food, I mean, that can feel fun and it's nice, but there's this deeper part of ourselves that are nourished by connecting to the wild food and being fed and nourished from them. I could not agree with you more. Um, well, it looks like we're coming up on the uh, on the um, time limit for the podcast program, but I wanted to make sure that people have the ability to uh, to find your books uh, and uh, other information that you have uh, out there, your um, your teaching venues and so on. So, where can people uh, find more out about what Dina Falcone has to offer? Sure. If, thanks for asking that. And people can go to my website. It's called BotanicalArtsPress.com. BotanicalArtsPress.com. And it, you can go onto that site and see the different books um, that we sell there, the two books that I wrote, and my illustrator's books are on the site as well. And also the classes and events that we offer, um, and other products as well related to foraging and botanical art. Um, yeah, so people can contact me through that website. We are teaching throughout the, the spring, summer, and fall. There's activities if people are interested. Again, go to the botanicalartspress.com. 
hit the events page and you'll see a whole bunch of listings and uh, yeah thank you Adam thanks thanks for having me on your show All right, well, we're back again, and thank you very much indeed for uh, hanging in there, sticking with me through the uh, our little intermission uh, theme music, a la Mother Nature. So uh, a quick exercise that uh, I suggest people do, if you don't have a whole lot of time to, like, you know, go out and study wild edible, edible plants, it's like, man, I got to take the kids to the soccer game, and then, then, then the older ones got basketball, and... And, uh, oh man, then I got, got to get the other one off to, to guitar practice or whatnot, or, you know, maybe they've got SATs or, you know, maybe you've got your, uh, maybe you are taking SATs yourself and you're really busy studying. Um, something you can do to, uh, to incorporate studying wild edible plants is just go on your break at work, or if you're in school, go out, you know, on your, uh, on your break, your lunch break or whatnot. And go out, walk around the building and look in the green places, you know, wherever there's landscaping or lawn or whatnot. And hopefully it's not so totally manicured that there's nothing growing there but grass. Hopefully there's at least something growing there that is other than, uh, than the lawn or whatever kind of landscaping is around there. And start looking there for those wild edible plants. Because one of the cool things about a lot of the plants that were in, uh, that are listed in Dina Falcone's book is that a lot of them are found in these uh, urbanized areas. That, that's one of the neat things. And we didn't get into that. Hopefully, uh, maybe I can have her back on the show again at a later point in time. And I can ask her about that, about you know, what was it about those particular 50 plants that she chose? So uh, one, of the, one of the things that, that I like to do is actually go around my work and look for all of the edible plants that I know. And then if there's some, then there's like, wow, man, that plant looks like it probably is edible. I wonder what it is. Well, I take a picture with my cell phone or my digital camera. And uh, if I'm, if I got enough time, I'll actually sit there and just pull it up, do an internet search right then and there looking for something that looks like this plant. Or I have enough years of, of plant ID experience where I've, I've kind of built up the ability to, to make some pretty educated guesses as to what something is. Um, and I'll, I'll give you some reference materials here in a minute. But just to give you an idea, within uh, two weeks of me starting this exercise, just, just recently, because it's springtime, all these plants are starting to really come out in, in full force. Uh, one, of the, um, one of the things that I did when, when the plants started really busting out was I went around and did this exercise where I started just identifying. I'm not talking about gathering and eating the plants around where I work, because I work in an industrial area in like a big, you know, concrete box sort of industrial place. And well, it's frankly not that great of a place to be doing the, um, the whole gathering of wild edible plants. But for ID work purposes, works out great. And this is what I came up with. Um, and these are plants, again, many of them that I already know. I came up with plantain, kinnikinnik, dandelion, Wild St. John's wort, Himalayan blackberry, thistles, two different kinds, serviceberry, cat's ear, miner's lettuce, wild carrot, clover, Oregon grape, and then uh, there's both uh, pine needles and Douglas fir needles, which you can make the needles into tea. That's just two weeks worth of, of you know, going out on my breaks and my lunch time and, and that kind of thing. So it just kind of gives you an idea of, you know, hey, you can study wild edible plants without investing massive quantities of time in the whole, uh, the whole endeavor. And so for reference material, what I suggest is, uh, pick up Dina Falcone's book. It's, I don't think you're going to regret that one bit. And then, uh, Dr. John Kalis, his last name is spelled K-A-L-L-A-S. His book, Edible Wild Plants, is a fantastic reference source, uh, with, um, photographs, these gorgeous color photographs that show the plants growing in their, through their, and the entirety of their life cycle. They're just beautiful images. And then he also includes some recipes and photographs of the food as it's prepared, sitting on the table and your mouth waters when you look at it. 
Um, that is a fantastic book. It's also available as an ebook, which is a really nice thing to have on your smart device when you're at work. So you can sit there and actually look up, oh, wow, is this plant in the, uh, in Dr. Kalis's book? Um, it's really handy that way, uh, having that book available as an ebook. And then there's uh, Tom Elpel's Botany in a Day. And Elpel is spelled E-L-P-E-L. And that's another physically large book like uh, Dina Falcone's. And so it has these nice, big, giant diagrams in it. And that one is used for keying out plants for uh, generic uh, plant family identification, which is really nice when you're looking at a plant and you're like, well, I have no idea. I don't know anything about plants and I'm not a botanist. So, and which I am not a botanist personally. Uh, his book really helps in getting those first steps of plant identification down. That's, it's really uh, a nice reference. And then the last thing is, uh, as I mentioned in the interview, getting some actual uh, wildflower books, at least one that is for your area, wherever you are, and using that as, uh, as an additional reference piece. And just a, a, a wildflower book, one that really appeals to you, that either has drawings, photographs, whatever it is, open it up and, and look at it you know, at the, at your local bookstore. And if it, if you look at it and you're saying to yourself, man, this is a nice book. I'd really enjoy looking at this. That's the one to get. Go with your gut instinct. Trust your gut. More often than not, our own critical thinking skills and our own reasoning skills, and our own gut instinct is as valuable as a dozen Amazon reviews or whatnot. Um, that's just, again, my personal opinion. I'm not an expert in anything, but it's just something that I've found and that I've heard other people, uh, people that I consider to be mentors of mine, uh, talk about. So I wanted to, to pass that piece of information along. And I don't know if you can hear that, but there's a frog croaking in the background, which is really kind of cool. It's nice of the frog out to join me here while I'm actually doing this. I did not dub that frog in here. He's, he's doing his own thing over there. Uh, you got to love uh, springtime. Anyway, and it's not raining today, which is amazing because I live in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. and it rains here. It should be raining right now. I don't know why it isn't. So that's why I was out mowing my lawn while I had a quick moment. And uh, so for contacting the show, and I definitely uh, encourage you to contact me if you have something to say about the show. If you liked it, awesome. If you didn't like it, awesome. Let me know. Let me know what you like, what you didn't like. Uh, if you have any suggestions, you know, guests that you'd like to hear from or uh, presentation concepts or ideas, by all means, please let me know. And so you can do that by emailing me at yourcoyoteradio at gmail.com. That's one word, Y-O-U-R-C-O-Y-O-T-E-R-A-D-I-O at gm. AIL.com. And go ahead and, and shoot me an email. I'd love to hear from you, see what you think about the show. And I've decided to go ahead and incentivize folks to, uh, to write in. So the fourth email that I get in response to the show, that fourth one that comes in uh, chronologically, you know, time stamped, uh, date stamped um, in the inbox, I'm going to go ahead and give away a free gift to that person, whoever that is. So there you go. There's your incentive for, uh, for getting a hold of the show. Let me know what you think. Uh, fourth person is going to get a free gift. And uh, that's another thing I wanted to point out about the show is that, I, hey, it's free. And I'm going to keep it free of uh, advertising and garbage to clutter up your, you know, your limited amount of time that you're already sparing to listen to the show. I mean, you know, if you're going to take the time out of your schedule to listen to the show, you should get something out of that. And that something, in my opinion, should be entertainment without a bunch of Google ads or flashy flash stuff on your, uh, on your computer or in your ears or whatnot. I don't know if you've tuned into any YouTube stuff lately, but we're getting local um, political advertising coming across YouTube these days on whenever we're checking out videos here at the house and uh, just about had enough of it myself. <laughs> so not going to subject you to any of that. And uh, 
that's it. Just uh, me trying to share some information and my perspective on things. I'd love to hear about your perspective on things. And join me once again for episode two, which should be coming up pretty soon. I'm hoping within the next oh, two weeks of when this issue or when this episode is posted, then we're going to have episode two up. That's my goal. We'll see where we get with that. And I think you're going to enjoy that one as much, maybe even more just because my own presentation abilities should be improving by then. All right. So you guys have a very good rest of your day, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, and we'll catch you on the next episode. This has been Adam with Coyote Radio.